Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome to the Digitally Uploaded Podcast, the companion podcast to digitallydownloaded.net. My name is Alan, I'll be with you this week, and with me on my lovely little brunch podcast, little brunch date podcast, is the venerable editor-in-chief, Matt Sainsbury. Hello, Matt. Howdy, how are you doing? Yeah, you know, kicking along, kicking along. What is your perfect brunch order? I'm pretty simple with my tastes. I just like a good bacon sandwich. I mean, I was not a big bacon sandwich person until I came over here because they do bacon sandwiches in Scotland that are phenomenal. Like, it's it's cooked. They also do this thing called square sausage where it's just a sausage in a square. It's really good. Yeah, it's it's about as, like, basic as you can get, but, yeah. Unfortunately, what about you? What about you? Oh, in terms of in terms of egg, I mean, I, I, I'm annoyed, right? I love an egg. Uh, my body does not like egg. Oh no, that's not, not good. anymore. Yeah. So previously, there used to be this ramen place in. Oh, it was like a really fancy, like brunch cafe, but they used to do breakfast ramen. So it was like bacon, eggs, and like everything in ramen, and it was so over the top. But hot dang, that was the best stuff ever. And like the really, really good high quality chili oil as well. I think that they'd made themselves. And oh, oh, that does sound it's not really a thing over here. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was also like not too bad for the price, but this is also before the entire world caught fire and died. So, yeah, probably that's probably now like four weeks worth of rent just for that one bowl. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. So it is a a bit of a quieter. Oh, yeah. If it had, that's if it why had I can't smashed, afford a house. If it had smashed ever, then that's it. You're out. Oh, I got furious. There's an ad campaign in the UK right now for frozen peas that are like, mix up your breakfast, use frozen peas instead oh, of avocado. Gross. Like, what the f- like, Why? Yeah, that's- t- Why would you use mashed peas on a piece of toast? That's like- Like, I, I joke a lot about the fact that England has wartime food permanently, but like, goddamn- <laughs> That's that's the most wartime food I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, that's bad. It's, I mean, it's bad enough when they put mashed peas on your your pie, let alone. Oh, um, I was thinking because uh, when I came over here again, this is now just a culture shock podcast. The um, they they put mushy peas on my plate, and I'd never seen that before, and I had no idea what the hell it was. And my disgust upon putting the tiniest little bit of it into my mouth was tangible. Like it was so. Like it was a visible reaction. Like you know when you see like an old cartoon and Wiley Cody gets hit in the head with like a, a frying pan, his entire body like shudders. That yeah, was the is, vibe. This is the moment where you kind of had regrets about moving up. Aye, that was the point where I said maybe I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> I miss Barney. <laughs> Lucky you got through that. You go, yeah. Exactly. Because there are other things that are good about England, right? It's just not the food. <laughs> right? Ish. Mm. I'm trying to be positive here. <laughs> it's making me think about the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of a quieter podcast this week. Everyone else is a little bit either busy or a bit unwell under the weather, so that's all good. But it is going to be going on as usual, as we expect. It is a quite large month, of course, as well, because a certain video game is coming out or has come out by the time that you're listening to this. So we're going to jump right into our games of the year and go from there. Thank you. 
It's time for the games of the month because there's always games releasing and we must talk about them because we are nothing if not the unending train of capitalism. Matt, let's jump into those video games. Yeah, let's do that. So, I mean, it does start a little bit slow in March, but I promise that by towards the end of the month, it goes nuts. It just goes absolutely nuts. It's crazy. It's crazy. So just before, it's not quite March, but as we record this podcast, it's not out yet, so we'll start with it. On February 29, right before March, we've got Final Fantasy VII Rebirth out. And as we record this, Embargo has just lifted, it's like two days ago. It's currently sitting on a 92 Metacritic score, which means- It's pretty bloody good. It's pretty good. It's actually, I was, to be honest, I'm a, I was a little bit surprised. I was not expecting it to- Eclipse its form the previous game, but it has. I think the other one, uh, remake. I think it has what a ninety eighty nine or something like eighty nine Metacritic score, which is still yeah. good, obviously. But yeah, this Aye. one is. I think it's the second or third highest rated Final Fantasy game ever at this stage, just behind Jesus. nine and possibly seven itself, possibly. I can't remember. I saw it somewhere on Twitter. Somebody put up like the the list of the medical. Oh yeah, it was uh, it was FFX that it's tying with and ah, Final Fantasy twelve. There we go. So yeah, at this stage, unless things go drastically wrong, as some other reviews kind of start to filter in, it is right up there with the best of Final Fantasy ever. Which again was not was was a little bit surprising to me. We will talk about that later on in the podcast. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but yes, we got things to Matt say. Matt hates Matt hates the game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hate it. Worst, worst, yeah. worst experience ever. You, they did not bring give Jesse, it a 10? They did not bring Jesse back, so I docked six points off it out of five stars for that. Good. Assholes. That's what they get. They do that to me. Cowards. <laughs> beach scenes and everything, and they still couldn't bring Jesse back. Anyway, moving on. 
It's just being weakened at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> March 1, we've got Cricket Through the Ages coming to consoles and stuff. I think that was originally an Apple Arcade game. It's one of the Devolver Digital published things. It's a silly, charming, funny game, which is exactly what you expect from Devolver. But yeah, it's coming to console, which is good for people that don't have Apple Arcade. That's March 1. March 5, we've got Shadows Over Loathing coming onto other platforms. I think just PlayStation 5. It's already on a bunch of other things. Shadows Over Loathing is that Lovecraftian-themed horror RPG with stick men, stick figures. Yeah. Yeah. Kingdoms of Loathing. Yeah, it's good fun. I I, I like stick men. I like that, that series. I used to play... What was it? Kingdoms. Kingdoms of Loathing, the original web game. Okay. Back when I was in high school and stuff, it's been around for a long, long, long time. And yeah, it was just one of those early HTML silly games that's, yeah, I got right into it for a while. And it's good that they're now doing standalone narrative things too, which is good. It's all good. Everything's good. Life is good. That comes out on March 5 if you have a PlayStation 4 and haven't yet played it on PC or Switch or wherever else it has been released. On March 6th, we've got Cat and Ghostly Road. Don't know much about this one, but it's an interesting title, has my attention. And it says here that it is an atmospheric point and click where you play as a white cat and you go on a dangerous journey to the world of ghosts and demons. I hate when that happens. And yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure you know, cats being cats, the ghost of demons like, well, shit. Like we have to feed this thing now. Yeah. It's never going away. It's adopted itself. Uh, I'm gonna say. <laughs> I have to I just a quick segue. My brother recently moved into a new house that he bought. I don't know how he managed to buy a house in today's economy. Well done, yeah. yeah, he's he's bought himself a place in Canberra, Australia's capital, and he's moved in. And within days, the neighborhood cat had adopted him and now kind of sits at the door and meows constantly to be let in. He has no idea who this cat even belongs to, but we all think that now they belong to the cat. And yeah, that's what oh, cats yeah. do. So demons will be able to experience that on March 6th with a cat just wandering around. On March 7, we got Fitness Boxing fe- featuring Hatsune Miku. Um, so bizarre. Which I can't wait for. I'm going to get so fit. Like, I'm going to be absolutely like, rich yeah. by, by the end of this game. I'm going to be like <laughs> the gym junkies. This is, and people this will is be your like, Peloton. <laughs> yeah. People will be like, how did you get so fit? I'm like, Hatsune Miku. But yeah. No pumps to seven. Miku. Oh, I didn't. Oh, did, should I oh. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, it's so oh, weird that oh. that game's coming out, but it's coming out March 7. Just genuinely Switch. shocked it's real. Yeah, it's, I thought it was a joke when it was first announced, but it's a thing. On March 7, we've got Top Racer Collection, which is a collection of old 16-bit racing games, which were good back in the day from memory. They were fun. <laughs> and now you can have a there collection of them. Top Racer, Top Racer 2 and Top Racer 3 thousand all in one pack on march 7 we've got snufkin melody of moomin valley coming out i um played this at tokyo game show last year and it's a okay it's a very it's weird that moomin's like a a big thing but not a lot of people know about it at the same time if that makes sense that's a little cow guy right looks like a hippo yeah yeah and he's fairy and so he's from um He's from Finland, isn't he? Finland or Sweden? One or the other. Yeah, one of those. 
And then he's yeah. massive in Japan. Absolutely massive in Japan. I actually went to a Moomin cafe that they'd set up in Japan once. So they had all kind of big stuffed Moomins around and it was all Moomin themed and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, yes, Moomin Valley is a point and click kind of adventure game style thing with some light puzzling as you wander around. It's very lovely because it uses the art style of Moomin, which is which is really nice. It's um, very cute and little. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, it's not going to be game of the year or anything. I'll say that up front right now. It's not going to be like kind of that kind of profile, but it is it is fun. It's a lot of fun, and I think that it will probably impress some people when it comes out. That's March 7. On March 8, we have the first kind of big game, I guess, for the year, uh, for the month. I mean, Miku is probably the biggest game of the month. But after that, we've, had, we've got the first big one, which is an Atlas and Vanillaware game. Unicorn Ooh. Overload. Yeah. looks, this looks excellent. Cool. Like, it just looks excellent. I haven't delved too deeply into it because I guess I missed when they announced it. But I've seen screenshots and I've seen it on the list of things and the art style is lovely. And I mean, let's let's be frank here. Anything that, anything that's <laughs> vanillaware that comes from the minds that gave us 13 Sentinels and Odin Sphere is going to catch my excuse me, catch my attention. So yeah, very much looking forward to that. That's a March 8 on stuff. I think it's just PlayStation or is it PC as well? Probably uh, it's on PlayStation, Switch, and Xbox. Oh, it's coming on Switch as well. Well, there we mm-hmm. go. Look at that on your OLED screen. We've got a <clears throat> got something in my throat. We got we got a Warhammer game coming on March eight. Warhammer forty k Darker Squadron. Oh, is that the Orc one? Darker Squadron is a fast paced aerial shooter where you play as an Orc flyboy. Yeah, um, cool. I guess that could be fun. Yeah. It's weird because there's so many forty. There's so many Warhammer forty k games these days. It's it's hard to keep track or be particularly enthusiastic about any of them. But the quality of them these days is not actually not that bad. Like there's a fair few good ones there's that get released. A few decent ones, but there's always the very obviously like we don't give a shit about this. Have the licensed ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like for example, the bolt gun was excellent last year. Yeah, and Rogue Trader was excellent last year. But then I'm playing an XCOM one at the moment, which is just not that enjoyable. Is that the the Mechanicus? Can't remember which one it is. The one with the Necroids or Necrons? <laughs> Necroids. <laughs> I have no idea which one it is. It's just very XCOM, like it's just XCOM done, but Warhammer 40k. And the one that that the one that I'm talking about, Mechanicus, is really really good. I've really enjoyed it. It's like a mix of like Slay the Spire with. Um, Isn't that a much older one? Yeah, it's like four years old now. Yeah, no, this is much newer, I think. Okay. I'm going to look it up now. Might as well. The one I'm playing, which is just not that engaging for me, is Demon Hunters. Oh, okay. It's just not doing much for me at the moment. I mean, it might pick up later on, but it's just, it's it's no Rogue Trader. Rogue Trader was really good. Really, really good. Rogue Trader is pretty cool. I want to try it. It's... It's kind of a good game to bounce off from Baldur's Gate 3. It's very similar. If I, I ever get off Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah. It's it's that top-down isometric RPG with lots of decisions and all that kind of stuff. It's not quite up to the standards of that one, but nothing is. But it is still a very high-quality one, and it's a good, good way to continue your isometric RPG experience. 
But um, moving on, moving on through the month. We're not here to talk about what came out last year. On March 12, we have Contra Operation Gallagher, which was announced, what, two days ago or something. And yeah, <laughs> who knows? Who knows how this one could go? The last Contra was anything but a good game. But it's also like, it's a remake of the first one, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, Contra OG. Oh, really? Yeah. So, wait, the first Contra took place in the islands off New Zealand? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, there it's we wild, go. Isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a remake of the first one. We've got a remake of the original Contra here, according They've to They've like added in new stuff to it, of course, but like it's a remake primarily. Like the, the trailer I saw of it, I knew all the levels. <laughs> Very interesting indeed. Yeah. Konami will find a way to mess it up. It's Konami. Well, that's the thing. You're just not quite sure with Konami these days. Mind you, I didn't mind that little horror game they did. The oh, the, one. It's fine. It wasn't very I didn't scary. Mind it. I didn't think it was great, but I didn't mind it. That's the thing is like, it's, it shouldn't just be fine. <laughs> it's Silent Hill. It should be pretty bloody good. Yeah. I'd, I'm so nervous. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, blooper team. Okay. Moving on. Yeah, let's not bitch too much about Konami. We could do that. We could be here all day doing that, but let's yeah. not. Let's not. I, I think we need to move on. March 13. Now, this one, you probably haven't been thinking about it, but when you hear it, I think when it actually comes out and people kind of pick it up, they're going to have their minds blown. We have Lamasoft, the Jeff Minter story. Now, this is, now it doesn't sound like much, I guess, but Jeff Minter is obviously a legendary game creator. And this is a collection of 42 of his games by Digital Eclipse being the guys that did the Atari one, Atari 50. And they've actually pitched this as an interactive documentary rather than a retro game collection. So you'll be looking at all kinds of historical records and probably video because that's what they did with the Atari one. And it's just going to be this really great piece of history from video games because Digital Eclipse is just started kicking, kind of knocking it out of the park with their with their retro their efforts to to save retro stuff but also contextualize it you know they actually put it yeah in, like the I was they, they explain that, yeah. the history of it you know they explain why it's valuable stuff they they really kind of go above and beyond it's not just about playing the game it's about kind of understanding what this game meant and where it came from and so on. So I'm really looking forward to this. Like I said, I didn't <clears throat> even know it was coming out until I just said it. But that's yeah, cool. We're looking yeah. at stuff like Attack of the Mutant Camels, Grid Runner, Tempest 2000. I mean, Jeff is a, a really legendary name in the older era of video games. So that's cool. That's out on March 13 on everything. See, we're not quite halfway through and we're still getting to the big stuff. Jesus. Yeah. On March 14, we've got Crown Wars, The Black Prince. Now, this one is a tactical turn-based strategy game set during the Hundred Years' War, which is not that often. We don't get that many games say. in that period. Not that many. Pops up from time it's, to time. but I can't think of anything that's coming to mind of it. The only one I can think of is Bladestorm, which uh, Tech, Koei Tecmo did a while oh, back. Oh, God, that's a... For the PS3. Oh! For the PS3 and PS4. And yeah, they did do a remaster for the PS4. So that was the last time I can think of the Hundred Years War being used as material. So this one has my attention. I, I'm quite a fan of the Hundred Years War as a period of history. It was quite dynamic. It had Joan of Arc and all that kind of stuff. 
And yeah, I'll try this. Yeah. Who knows? It might be bad, but I'll try it anyway. On March 14, we have Star Wars Battlefront Classic Collection coming out. Now, those are the shooters, aren't they? Yes, it is. I'm very excited about this because those They're games the big are extremely shooters, right? rock. Yeah. They're they really, really were they, also developed in Australia. They were P- PS2 ones, right? And they were one of the early yep. kind of mass PS2, multiplayer GameCube, games on... Yeah, they were one of the first kind of mass multiplayer games on console, weren't they? Like, mm-hmm. you could actually hook those up to the internet and play online. Yeah, it was like 64 players, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, which was pretty impressive for the PS2 era, you know? Yeah, I mean, and the game actually looks, like, decent as well, which is shocking. Like, it's, it, I was playing it, like, maybe two years ago because um, I was upset about Battlefront, the new ones, <laughs> <laughs> and was having, like, a pretty decent time of it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll probably check those out too, especially if they I mean, I assume they would have integrated multiplayer into this, so it'll be like, yeah, it, a whole bunch of. Retro I think they've Star added Wars a bunch games. of stuff too. Hmm. Cool. It was cool. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun. On March fifteen, you got Kingdom Come Deliverance coming out on Switch, which is that's wild. Technically impressive. Yeah. Like genuinely Game's okay. Impressive. You know, I know the game had all that controversy because of the developer that was involved back in a certain era of era of game discourse that we won't talk about. But yeah, the game's actually not bad. It's totally fine. Yeah. It's janky as hell and it's a bit cooked. But like, you know. Yeah. But it does do a decent job, I guess, of representing Middle Ages aesthetics and stuff in a fairly authentic yeah. way. Like if you think about Elder Scrolls has been a very fantasy take on medieval Europe. This one's a quite authentic take. Yeah, and that everyone's afraid of the Turkish. Yeah. (laughs) As they should be. Yeah. Watch out for that Holy Roman Empire. It'll fucking get you. (laughs) We've got the MLB, the show for the year coming out on March 19. So there you go. Baseballs. Baseballs. They're all good. Reliable. It'll be fun. I'm sure I'll lose a bunch of time to it and then wonder why I did that when the next one comes out because that's a whole lot of time sunk into a game that's an annual release. But there we go. You'll be able to enjoy that on everything. It's coming out on Switch as well, isn't it? Yeah, still doing the Switch. So, yeah. Hi-Fi Rush comes out on everything else but Xbox on March 19. It's been on Xbox for a while. A lot of people liked it. It's kind of that rhythm game, action game combination by Tango Gameworks. Came out of nowhere because that was like one of the ones that was announced and dropped on the same day. Yeah, that was a surprise drop. That was uh, they, did a, they did a Sega Saturn <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, and they, they they never they had exactly the same response. Like nobody ended up playing it because there was no no one knew about it. Yeah, there was no hype <laughs> leading up to its launch. So I think Microsoft kind of overestimated how many people actually watched their direct style shows. Aye, and yeah, but it was actually a pretty decent game. So. I think it'll I be really pretty good it, on yeah. Switch with the OLED screen because it's pretty colourful. Like it's a vibrant, yeah. colourful, over kind of saturated looking game. So I think on the OLED it's gonna be pretty neat. On March twenty, the much delayed Alone in the Dark finally comes out. Oh shit. Again. And I'm looking forward to this. Because this is a remake of the original, isn't it? Or a re envisioning. Uh yeah, it's a reimagining of the original. It's very like Resident Evil 2 remake y. Yeah, yeah, completely top-down remake. But that was good because I the original Lone in the Dark was it was the first 3D survival yeah. horror game, I think. So it was like it was 92 from, or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, really, really kind of boundary-pushing game. 
And I'll be interested to see what they do with this one. Because obviously Alone in the Dark fell off the rails when Atari took over it. And yeah, yeah it really fell off the rails. So this now David Harbour in it too. It does. And he's pretty, pretty neat for this kind of game, I would think. I just hope they've kept the Lovecraftian subtle in it. If you know what I mean, like, yeah, whenever whenever a game developer tackles the Lovecraftian style horror, I um I have questions because if they go too over the top with tentacles and stuff, then it just kind of loses its edge. But the original Alone in the Dark was pretty good with that, and I'm hoping that they've kept that going for this one. Moving on. Now we're starting to get to the later half of the month, so things, like I promised you, things pick up from here. On March 22, we've got Legacy of The Legend of Legacy HD Remastered coming out on Switch and PlayStation 4 and stuff. This was a, I want to say 3DS RPG, possibly okay. DS. No, it was 3DS RPG, and it was pretty neat. It was, it was in the vein of Four Heroes of Light and Bravely Default and that kind of approach to J JRPGs. This one kind of flew a little bit under the radar compared to those, but obviously it's back now and hopefully it will get some attention because it is a very good game. Also yeah. on March 22, we've got Princess Peach Showtime, which is Nintendo's big release for the month. Now, I didn't think that I'd be so interested in this game when it was first announced, but every time they do drop more information, I get more and more keen on it. It just looks very cute. It does. It really looks like a lot of fun. and. If it is a, even a little bit as fun as it looks like, it's going to be a pretty good time. Unfortunately, it's actually releasing the same time as a bunch of other games, so I don't think it's going to get cut through. Not only is it getting released on the same day as The Legend of Legacy HD, which is going to get some attention from the more hardcore JRPG fans, it's going to have to compete with Dragon's Dogma 2, which comes out on March 22, which is going to be a big deal. I know Dragon's Dogma didn't exactly set sales charts are light but it has got an excellent a reputation big following now yeah. yeah and it's got that reputation just being a really bloody good game for good reason it is a really bloody good game but yeah the the hype going into dragon's dogma 2 is going to be pretty huge i would think so yeah and on top of that on the same day as princess peach legacy of legend of legacy and dragon's dogma 2 we also have rise of the ronin coming out that's the Koei Tecmo one. Which is the Koei Tecmo take on Ghost of Tsushima, basically. <laughs> no, it's yeah. um, it's actually more uh, Souls-like, but it's set at the period where the Americans came with the big black ships and said, open your country or we're going to blow you to smithereens. So after that, they had a little civil war inside of Japan and then emerged as the country that it was leading into the 20th century. So, yeah, it's got... Primitive guns, that's that's the area of kind of primitive guns, but also people still carried around swords and stuff. And we're, we're going to be playing as, I don't know which side we play on, actually. I haven't followed it that closely, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it is from the same team, Team Ninja, as Neo and Wolong. So I would expect it to be of a similar quality, plus a different historical era to wander around. So. Yeah. Yeah. I would expect that would be good. I'd be surprised if it's not good, put it that way. Yeah. And Neo's been pretty good consistently. And Wild was good too, once you got past the tutorial boss. 
Yeah, it was like the hardest boss in the whole bloody game. Once you got past him, it was just a pretty cruisy, fun. Fast uh, the the Lou Boo fight was ridiculous. I remember that being so much. And also, of course, it had to be. Well, if, if the Lou Boo fight's not ridiculous, then they've done something very wrong. Because, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 The Lou Boo fight was pretty tough. I agree. But yeah, other than that, though, it was pretty, as far as Souls likes go, it was pretty accessible. Yeah. Just those two. We've got a new Daymare game coming out on March 26th, which oh. would be about the 76th Daymare game, I guess. They just keep churning them out. I was going to say, there's been like four of those in the last year. I know. I know. I don't know what this one is about, but there you go. They're, they're actually, I think I, I, I did play one of them. I can't remember which one, but they're a decent enough effort to do Resident Evil. Yes, not Resident Evil. It's like it's they're they're not indie, cheap, nasty games. They're they're reasonably put together, and there's obviously some kind of audience for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep making them. Yeah, yeah. On March, someone's someone's happy with that one. (laughs) Yeah, somebody out there is going. Yes, I can't wait. On March 26, we've got South Park Snow Day coming out. Another that'll be silly and fun. I'm sure some people have good fun with that one. That's not an RPG. It's a four player cop. Yeah, it's a four player cop. Beat him up. RPG thingy, a bit like, like a good version of that new Baldur's Gate game that came out, the Dark Alliance game, from what oh, I right. can understand. Gotcha. It's set in the same continuous world as the old ones. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Fun, I guess. I mean, it could be fun. It should be fun. It, it will probably be okay. I mean, they've not made a bad game in that series since they started actually putting effort in. I was going to say, they, they used to be notoriously bad South oh, Park games. The, but... Remember the, the PS1 South Park game? It would run I like two read, frames a second. Yeah, I played the one on the N64, which was like a shooter. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, that's the one, is it? It was even worse, I imagine, on PlayStation 1 then. It, oh, it, yeah. It ran okay-ish on the, the N64, but it was just not a good game at all. No, it was like a terrible like uh, Doom clone. Or Clank yep. clone, I guess. Yep. Yuck. We've got a horror game coming out for you, Alan, on March 26th. Oh. New Mata. So new is in, you know, in, in, oh, like air. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the description. Cool. The description's pretty cool. Let me just get to okay. read the full thing out to you. The tenants are going missing. Screams echo and blood seeps through the walls of Clover Hill. As a detective, you unravel the truth that lies within and recover your fragmented memories or succumb to the horrors that lurk in the shadows within this sinister blend of survival and psychological horror. That sounds fun. Yeah, it sounds like a time. That sounds like a thing. Let's do a little quick Google search and just see if it's like good graphics and stuff, shall we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it looks fine. It looks like a thing. It looks like a survival horror game. That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Never never seen one of them before. Never. No, I don't know what those are. (laughs) We're getting close to the end of the month now. We've got oh Farming Simulator Kids. <laughs> what the hell? Yes, there is an actual Farming Simulator Kids coming out on March 26. What do they? What makes it a kids? Like, <laughs> what do, is it like child labor? <laughs> the children yearn for the mines, Matt. Oh my God. <laughs> Look, you've got to search for this, Alan. Alan. Yes. Go onto Google and type Farming Simulator Kids into it. You're, you're in for an eye opening. 
Oh my god! What the hell is this? <laughs> oh, it's little. No, that's cute. It's cute, but it's just. I actually like that. It's so, it's so off-brand for farming simulator. It's odd. Yeah, it's it's really. I, I don't odd. know how to feel about this. This is the most like. Eh? <laughs> Because farming you know simulator I mean? is like ha- hardcore simulations of farming. Like it's not Harvest Moon. It's actual, like yeah, like you go and you have to buy fuel for your tractor. Yeah, exactly. And you have to go through the full process to farm crops and stuff. You can't just you know plant and then dig. It's like proper farming simulator. That's the whole point. That's what people love yeah. about it. Farming simulator kids is not that. <laughs> I, I, Who I is this even- for then? I don't understand who this is for. Are they trying to like take kids, make them fans of Farming Simulator, and then turn them into fans of the real game? Because I don't see how you go from this to Farm Sim. But I'm just really confused. Like, <laughs> I don't know. And yet, I'm intrigued. I'm going to play it now. I mean, it looks cute. That's but the like, why would you would pick this over like? Seasons of Melody or whatever it's called now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. Why you would pick it over that, or why did you pick that over Stardew Valley, which that's has co-op as well? That is like, the thing. It's just anyway. odd. Good to them. But yes, if you are intrigued by farming simulated kids, then March 26th is the day for you. On yeah. March 28th, we've got... <laughs> uh, I'm really looking forward to this. On March 28th, we've got Touch Detective 3, the complete case files. So it's it's a point and click detective puzzle game kind of thing, but it, it, it was it was popular, really popular in Japan uh, on the DS, okay. and they did localize them into West, but they didn't do particularly well. But the series kind of died off after the third one on the DS, so they've gone and remastered it for the Switch here, and yeah, the the they're proper detective. They're proper detective games in that they don't hand, hold your hand. You actually need to solve the puzzles and you feel like a, a smart old person when you get them right. And it's just really cute with a mascot. The There's a little kind of sidekick character that's a fungus, a walking fungus. And is it like a cute walking fungus or is it like a... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yep. there exists two realms in which that could go. <laughs> One of them is horrific. The other is neat and cute. No, it, this one's cute. Namiko. Type Namiko into into your Google there, Alan. And, and you pull this. Namiko into my Google. Uh, yeah, N-A-M. Nam- as in like just phonetically spelled like Japanese style. Yeah, N-A-M-E-K-O. Namiko. Oh! So this little character became wildly popular as a result of the games he's got his own games he actually got a tv series anime spin-off as well he's so little this and is the most sanrio coded character i've ever seen in my life <laughs> he actually had like they, they even had pop-up stores for all kinds of merchandise for this this little character so he's actually a big deal in japan and he got his start thanks to touch detective so he was a spin-off character That's there. really sweet became, yeah he was the spin-off character there became really popular and now they're bringing back the game that kind of made him famous and the household name in Japan. So, yeah, look forward to that. It's actually it's actually a game worth looking forward to. I love this yeah. little mushroom guy. Thank you for introducing me to him. You're very welcome. 
On March 28, we have Felix the Cat coming out for some reason. Hell yeah. Is that? The, I guess it's the old one. It's just the month of weird little guys. <laughs> yeah. I haven't heard of Felix the Cat for such a long time. And there we go. He's coming out. He's cute. I, I feel like Felix the Cat's another one of those characters that I just have never seen like actual pieces of media of. Yeah, I know, but everybody- I've, I've never seen merch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just, that's what it is. Yep. <laughs> I did not know this, but there's actually a Pac-Man game coming out in March too. We, we're talking like Pac-Man Ghostly Adventures Pac-Man. We're talking Pac-Man Worldy. We're talking like original OG style packies. No, nothing about it. Pac-Man Mega Tunnel Battle Chomp Champs is the name of it. It comes out on March 31. That's a very good name. It is... Oh, it's a multiplayer online party game. It looks cute, oh. actually. I'm intrigued. I don't know anything about this game, so, but I'm intrigued now because you can actually dress your. <laughs> They've done the four guys thing where you can dress your Pac Man up like with all kinds of weird stuff. No, I love that, and I like that a lot. Yeah, I'm a fan of that, and yeah. So the description reads: Pac Man Mega Tunnel Battle Chomp Champs is an online only Pac Man eating competition. Eat your way through multiple interconnected mazes using power, power pellets and a variety of power items to chomp the ghosts and opponent Pac Man players. Be the last pack standing at the end of each match in the 64 battle royale. It is four guys, the Pac Man take. So there you go. That's solid. I'm going to play this. I'm sold on this concept. It might be okay. It might be yeah. a complete. His take, but it might be okay. Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm genuinely interested now. It could go either way, but I, I'm I'm gonna give it a go. On March 31, we got flashback two coming out, which is why is why is that coming out? Oh, uh, it's coming out on other platforms. It's actually already out on some things and it's got mm, a Metacritic score of 36. So oh shit. Okay. Don't yeah, look it, it wasn't to this. even like 2D. It wasn't even 2D, was it? It was like a weird 2.5D with like shitty aiming. Is it? Yeah, it was like Shadow. What was the, the game on Xbox 360 that everyone loved? It was like Shadow Complex or something like that. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's not even lower rating on PC. 35 on PC, 36 on PlayStation 5. God, I that's, guess it's, that's I guess awful. it's coming on like Switch and Xbox on March 31. But. Yeah, I'm not interested in it anymore. I really like the original flashback. That was a game that my cousin had. It's a very cousin game. Yeah, it's one of those ones that <laughs> very people- Like, you're not quite sure it actually exists. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Nobody bought it, but everybody seemed to know somebody that had it, and they played it somehow that way. Yeah. It's Earthworm Jim. <laughs> Here we go. I did not know this was coming out either, but all of a sudden I'm intrigued by this as well. On March 31, we've got Still Wakes the Deep coming out. Still Wakes That's the Deep cool. is a first-person narrative horror from the Chinese room, as in everybody's mm. gone to the rapture, dear Esther, and amnesia, a machine for pigs. God. I, I'm a fan of the Chinese room. I know that <laughs> some people are on and off about them, and they're not everybody's favorite developer necessarily, but especially ever, everybody's gone to the rapture, I absolutely love that game. That's probably their best one by far. Yeah, I can see why people would think that. I mean, I know Amnesia, a machine for pigs, didn't get um, a lot of people didn't get along with that. I think probably because they were expecting more Amnesia and this one. Yeah, 100%. It it shouldn't have been called Amnesia. It would have been fine if it wasn't Amnesia. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. 
And then Dear Esther was kind of their first game, so it was really just a, a breakout thing. So, yeah, everybody's gone to the Rapture is definitely their most solid release. But, yeah, I'm keen on Still Wakes the Deep. I'm keen. What's the concept of it? Let's have a read. Oh, it's like the it's like an oil rig that's being oh like, well. That is uh, one of my that, that is actually one of my kind of horror scenarios. Actually, being on an oil rig. So this my one dad's probably done before. Apparently, it's awful. Sorry, my dad's been on one of those before. Apparently, it's awful. Yeah, I can imagine. So, and then it'd be so isolating. Like you'd feel like you're kind of yeah. I, I can see this one tapping into some deep seated fears for me, <laughs> and yeah, that could be good. It might be okay. Again, because it's an original thing, I'm more okay with it. If it was called Amnesia, A Dark Descent, I'd be a bit pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Or Silent Hill. <laughs> it was a Silent Hill branded game or something like that. I know. What I would mean. actually genuinely rather have them make the new Silent Hill. Like, oh, than a Bluberteam game. I know. I, oh, God. Oh, God. You and Bluberteam. Well, they should stop making the worst statements ever. <laughs> <laughs> and the worst games ever. And actually, that kind of wraps things up. There is one more game coming out of March 31, which nobody will play, Rich Man 11, which is part of the... Oh. It's a Taiwanese developer's kind of Mario... No, not Mario Party. Fortune Street, Boom Street style <laughs> Monopoly board game thing. And... Be fun. They're fun. I mean, they're, they're translated horribly, so you have to be able to deal with English. Oh. But if you can get through that, then yeah, they're fine. But it's a very kind of niche game that rounds out the month but it is a big month like that's a lot of games i just read through there's a lot there and to be honest with you like there's still a lot of stuff coming out from last month as well that like i don't know how anyone has time to play anything no it's going to be it's going to be pretty crazy but of all of those which one would you pick if you picked one to play on well i mean i'm gonna probably pick up the battlefront games because i mean yes that's like childhood that's like that has the vibe of going to bloody like video easy on a friday your mom says you can rent a game for the weekend <laughs> like that's what that's what i think of so yeah that's like exciting to me but yeah probably battlefront what about you matt what would you pick up oh i mean obviously hatsune miku because i'm going to be ripped i'm going yeah. to be like the fittest person on the planet after that game comes out but um <laughs> come back and just be fucking like a tekken character <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but more seriously i probably dragon's dogma 2 because yeah, it wasn't the world's It'd be great. biggest fan of all time of Dragon's Dogma, but I did appreciate what it did. And I'm keen to see if they can or if they've changed it in a way that kind of clicks with me oh, a bit better with Dragon's Dogma. I mean Dogma the too. classes they've gotten it. Look um, like I've never seen anything like it before. Like the incense person who doesn't actually do anything, but just like sets up for other people to do all the work in a single player game. <laughs> yeah. It's very cool. It's interesting. There's stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I, I think Itsuno deserves it after all this time of him wanting to make it. But well, the other thing is like, Dra- mm. the the time and place that it's come out is in a very different thing. So the original Dragon's Dogma was a notoriously challenging, difficult game at a time was it before that, or after Dark Souls. If it wasn't before Dark Souls, it was before Dark Souls had become like the massive thing, mainstream. Would, yeah. yeah, so. This one is now coming out post Elden Ring, and I imagine that if it is similar to the first Dragon's Dogma, where it's this big, huge open world with a lot of challenging combat and kind of an ambience rather than a direct storytelling mechanism, then I think it might do better with... 
I think it, more people might get what they're aiming for with it. So, I, yeah, it has potential. It has a lot of potential, and I'm keen to see if they can execute on that. So that's my pick. For yeah. So it's a big, big month because uh, I mean, at the end of February, we have a very big game coming out by the name of Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, which, I mean, if you're coming to digitally downloaded.net, you probably already know about. You probably read Matt's review. So, you know, that's all up there. Go find the link on, on the site. I'm sure we can put it into the, the bio of the um, podcast when we upload it. But yeah, Matt, I want to actually ask you uh, to go a little bit more in depth for me. Like, you in one of the conversations we had before mentioned that you were surprised it was getting as good a score as it was. Why is that? Yeah. I think post Final Fantasy 16, there are definitely areas where the older engine of this game is clear. So, I mean, Final Fantasy 16 had this kind of really dynamic action combat system that was fast and very fluid Ooh. and, it was it was a good combat system that a lot of people got along with, regardless of what they thought about the rest of the game. And it also had those absolutely spectacular kind of boss fights that were just they are so good. I just go back to that game. Yeah, I say every just, time we do this podcast, they're, they're, they're just so like the the amount of detail and the amount of work that went into those boss fights to make them set pieces was just spectacular. So Final Fantasy VII Rebirth feels like you're stepping back to a pre Final Fantasy 16 era with this thing where the combat is still, I mean, the combat is an action combat system, but it is still designed around the ability to be able to pause and play it almost like a turn-based game with the way that the kind of the, the ATB bar, I guess, fills up to allow you to do your special attacks and magic attacks and stuff. So yeah. it has a, it has the rhythms of a, a more sedate paced turn-based style classical Final Fantasy. And 
I just was surprised that there wasn't more said about that. Because while I think Final Fantasy VII Remake and now obviously Rebirth, they have perfectly decent combat systems. I, I just didn't think that that was the direction that people wanted to see Final Fantasy and RPGs in general go. So I was a little bit surprised by that. I was also surprised by the fact that it did so well, given the way that it handled its open world stuff. So, because it's not it's not an open world per se; it's open maps that are well, connected. It's a series of open like zones. Worlds. It's a series yeah. of open worlds, but it, the 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 approach that they've taken to each of those zones is open world. So you pull up a menu, you'll see icons all over the map. You'll go to certain ones to you know get side quests or to do little mini tasks with the main one, I guess, that you'll do first being you'll run up to all the towers that you find so you can unlock those towers because those oh, towers- Oh, it's Far Cry. Well, yeah, it's, it's very Far Cry in design in that once you unlock those type towers, it kind of shows all the other icons in a region around that tower. So you you want to go and do those towers first so you know the full scope of what you can do in the in the map. And then you'll come across people that give you little mini quests and, and stuff that you also need to follow, which take you out of the main plot while you're doing those. And I just, I was surprised that people weren't more critical of that because it ain't The Witcher, you know, it's not of that standard of open world experience that you would say that this is like a standout feature of the game, yet it takes up so much of your time while you're playing. It's a hundred hour game. Yeah. And so much of that is spent wandering around this kind of massive series of open worlds doing these little- Does it need to be an open world game? Yeah, that's, that's my point. I mean, the thing is, you know, Remake was a very linear game, right? Yeah. You pretty much, I mean, there was a couple of areas where you had a little bit more openness to go and do some kind of side distractions, but for the most part, you're wandering down corridors following, following plot point to plot point. It was very 13-y. Yeah, exactly. Very 10 Yeah. Yeah. And so I know that, I mean, obviously with the original Final Fantasy VII, it was the same, same kind of deal. You started out in this little, little in this big city. And you're kind of restricted in terms of what you could do because you're in the city and you're following a very linear path. Once you got out of that city, all of a sudden the world just you know exploded in size and it really felt like you had this massive space to adventure around. And it was one of the kind of defining moments of Final Fantasy VII, just that moment where you left the city and saw the- And you hear the music for the first time. Yeah, okay. and, you see, and you see the world for the first time and then all of a sudden- And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I've got like the whole world to explore from here. Uh, everything's nice and open now. So what they've tried to do is take that moment and spin that into kind of the concept of the whole game. And it does to an extent. I mean, I certainly felt the first bit where you, you in, in at the start of Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, you're, you're in the town of Calm and you do a little couple of things in that town. Then Shinra shows up and you need to escape. Once you escape, then you suddenly see the open world open in front of you. And it is very impressive, like just the scope and the sense of, kind of world building and and it's it, it, it's a good moment but yeah after that once you start getting into the nitty-gritty of what you're actually doing in this open world space it it became one of the lesser parts of the game for me i wanted to just kind of go through the story because the story is absolutely spectacular what they've done with it the way they've written it same same writer as remake and stranger of paradise and he's the best still- final fantasy game 
Yeah, this guy this guy is still in great form in terms of being able to take an original plot, an original Final Fantasy plot and kind of work with it. Work with it. <laughs> but at the same time subvert it so that, you know, it's it's interesting and makes you think about we've talked about that guy in the podcast in the past. He's a genius and he's done the same thing with this one. I can't do spoilers, obviously, but he has done the same thing with this one. And Does Aerith die? <laughs> I can't say. I can't can't say these things. I'm not going to say these things. But it's just the the narrative bits, the great narrative bits that he's got are just spread spaced out between all this stuff where you're then wandering around this world looking for bloody towers to unlock. I can give you a good example of where it kind of really stuck with me just how frustrating this is this is in the way that they've designed the game. Yeah, okay. So there was a point where you meet Yuffie, my favorite character, given that Jesse's not around anymore. Her intro is just great. It's like vintage Yuffie. She's <laughs> she, she certainly puts on puts on the show when she kind of enters, and then you fight a boss battle, and that's a spectacular boss battle. It's one of the best in the game. And then there's a whole narrative sequence which goes on for about ten minutes, and then Shinra shows up, and a familiar face that is also a great character from the original. Uh, he also shows up, and there's a lot of tension set, and they're like, okay, so it's now. Zach. Yeah, so now you're going to go topside because at that, that stage you're kind of um, in in the open world bit, but you're going to go up to one of the Shinra bases and, and stuff and all. So there's a huge setup. It's like, yeah, this is a really intense narrative moment. This is great. I've just met a new character. Everything's progressing. And then you speak to a character and they give you a quest which sends you chasing a dog for 20 minutes across the open world. And it's just follow a follow the leader kind of side quest. Which see is it, it's completely unrelated to the narrative, the main narrative. It takes you out of the, the the that narrative. By the time you finish the quest, you're now on the other side of the map, and you've got all these icons around saying you oh, should do this God before sakes. you go back. And it just breaks the flow of the narrative completely. And for me, that was the that was the disappointing thing about Final Fantasy Rebirth. It's not the quality of the game. Everything about the game is just super high quality. It's just that it doesn't need it did not need to be an open world experience and in making it open world they really undermined what all the the great qualities about the game so that's why i was a little bit surprised that it's done so well and it's got like a 92 metacritic it's not that it's a bad game by any means i gave it a five i gave it a four and a half out of five so i gave it a very positive review i think it's an excellent game it's just they screwed with it yeah well, I mean, this is my issue with a lot of open world games is that unless there is a reason for my main character to be doing a side quest, it shouldn't be in the game. Like, it makes sense in The Witcher because you're a traveling monster hunter. You know what I mean? In Final yeah, Fantasy VII, you're trying those... to stop the world from ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in, in The Witcher, those side quests were all kind of written as stories in themselves. Yeah, like they're they, proper side stories. Yeah, they, they had a point. Like, as world building and, and whatever, they actually contributed to the whole thing they weren't just time taken up to to take up time yeah um, i also think about your automata a lot as a good example of like a jrpg with really good side quests yeah exactly have a purpose yeah exactly if they've got a purpose and that's great but if it's just chasing a dog because that's a side quest to take you to another space part of the world to do more side quests and stuff before getting back to the main narrative it's just it's like not why right. why am yeah. i here yeah and I think why, I mean, is, I, why is Cloud Strife, who is undergoing extreme like mental stress because of a ghost of a man who may or may not be alive, I don't know yet. Like, 
why is he why is he collecting daisies? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and I know why they did it because we're now in 2024, and this is how open worlds work. And you know, when you look at Final Fantasy, the original Final Fantasy VII, and that moment where you go out into the world, it is, you know, it's open in a sense, like it's a big space to wander around. So I can see why they translated that into open world gameplay design. But when you think yeah. about it, Final Fantasy VII in that open world bit is actually very Doesn't linear. Have You're yeah. still wandering to the next kind of narrative objective. You know, that's the there are a couple of side things you can do, like very few side things you can do, like for you know, hidden bonuses and find Vincent and all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, you're just following the same trail of breadcrumbs to the next major narrative yeah. moment. There's not towers to unlock and wellsprings to find and nonsense like that. So, yeah, I know it sounds like I'm disappointed with the game, but that's not not it at all. I'm I mean, just the thing is, if surprised. you were fully uncritical of it, then like it wouldn't be a purposeful review. Like, what's the point? And because <laughs> yeah. like no game is perfect. Like, I hate when reviews are just like 10 out of 10, best game ever, and don't say why it's a 10 out of 10, or like say how how it's realistically like flawed, but is overwhelmingly positive regardless of those flaws. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it yeah. has, there has to be something that's like not, doesn't work quite as well, because that's just how art is. Yeah, exactly. I just, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's such a weird one. This, it's just the Metacritic score that throws me with this game. Yeah. Because obviously Square Enix's takeaway for this is going to be Final Fantasy 16 bad, Final Fantasy 7 rebirth good. You I know, so hope they don't do that. Don't think that's the takeaway they should be taking from it. But I I, I just want I'm I'm I've been really trying to figure out what it was about Final Fantasy 7 rebirth that resulted in the score that it got from so many critics. I mean, obviously I've read some of the reviews and they talk about similar things, but I wonder if it's just like because it's Final I, Fantasy VII? I, I just get the sense that, yeah, I get the sense that the score has been inflated a little bit on for, for some reason, and if it didn't have the Final Fantasy VII branding, it would perhaps not have scored the same for that exact game that people have been playing. I guess it's also like the investment, you know what I mean? Because people who liked a Remake, they're already wanting to like Rebirth, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, like, it's it's the Avengers thing where everyone frothed Infinity War, but if you made me watch that movie, I'd be like, I don't know who the, the hell these people are. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. So yeah, seeing you- the characters that you know and love and being like, well, what's going to happen to them? You're instantly, like, way more invested, I think. Yeah, you're probably right. I would be- like, in the sense that the people that reviewed Final Fantasy VII Rebirth would have been oh, the yeah. ones that finished Final Fantasy VII Remake. Because I would be really interested to see if you didn't like, like a review remake, from someone who didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't like Remake, you're not going to play Rebirth. It's a direct sequel yeah. for one thing. It's not going to make sense to you unless you've played re- uh, Remake. So there's a filtering, I guess, in terms of the critical opinion that the people playing Rebirth are the ones that were fans. Yeah. You're, yeah, I think you're onto something there. Whereas with Final Fantasy 16, it would have been a bunch of people that aren't necessarily fans of well, there's nothing to be a fan of beforehand going into it necessarily, because it's an original game. Yeah, which is why I guess making original games is so much more risky. Because like, yeah, why and, would and you? There make is always a that game effect. Like that. There is always that quality in Final Fantasy games that ultimately you're going to piss somebody off with them. Like, yeah. because every single Final Fantasy game is different. 
there's ultimately going there's there's always going to be at least one or two people who are final fantasy fans who don't like this new one and it's the it's the final fantasy effect where like the news game that comes out is amazing for a year then everyone hates it after that for about four years until the next one comes out and then everyone says how good the last one was yeah the, it's what happened to final fantasy 10 12 13 and 15 it's starting to happen to 15 as well i don't know if you've noticed that people talking about 15 yeah, people are now getting all about 15 who despised that game yeah but all of a sudden it's like why people people are much more positive on it now you know yeah it's always that thing. Like Final Fantasy Thirteen was a great one. I remember people loathed that game. That was probably the least popular Final Fantasy game on launch. Yep. But all but these days, if you talk about Final Fantasy Thirteen, everybody's like, "Oh, this that game was such an amazing. Where's the remake? Or where's the re-release? Why haven't they done anything with it? You know, it's it is a it is a funny effect. Whereas Final Fantasy Seven Rebirth is probably insulated from that a little bit because it's already a Final Fantasy game that people obviously love. And yeah. I think I think probably a part of it as well is where remake was relatively limited in terms of the characters. I mean, I, I joke on about Jesse a lot, but Jesse was not a character of note in the original Final Fantasy VII, and they built her up into a major character in remake. So it was kind of a bit weird that all of a sudden, you know, th- this character that I don't have any existing relationship with is is taking up a lot of the screen time while I play this game. Whereas with Final Fantasy Rebirth, all the characters there are already characters that people kind of, you know, love. I mean, I know as I was playing, I was just waiting for the moment Vincent Piney showed up because he's kind of my favorite Final Fantasy VII character. And so there was that huge anticipation. And then obviously the payoff once he does show up is is pretty great because- You're a big Dirge of Cerberus fan. <laughs> I am. I am. I was a fan of Dirge of Cerberus, actually. But the same, you know, Yuffie's a very popular character. She was made more popular by the fact she was the DLC character in Remake. So when she she doesn't start in the party in Rebirth, when she joins, that's kind of uh, like I was saying when I was talking about the moment earlier. That's a that's a big moment in the game, and it's a kind of a, the, the Final Fantasy VII Rebirth has all of these moments of like extreme joy, usually attached yeah. to where there's narrative. So when when there's narrative, there's just like this is a great moment. This is this game's doing some great things. You know, Ares has amazing personality. You get to see young Tifa in a kind of flashback scene, and she's great. You know, the the relationship between her and Cloud as kind of kids was was really kind of cute and touching. In fact, the relationship between Cloud and Sephiro when they were younger was a really nice uh, was done really nicely as well. And again, that was kind of within the narrative part of the game. So whenever the writer was involved with scenes in Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, it was just the most spectacular thing. That's like cool though. I'm, I'm really excited about it because it's nice to be back in an era where I can be excited about a JRPG again. And like, there've been so many good like single player games or games in general that are just respecting, like just making you feel good. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, nice absolutely. That it's, just, it's just a cool thing. It's exciting. Yeah, I, I think more things that make us happy. <laughs> I think you'll. I think you'll like. I think most people, obviously, most people that have played Final Fantasy VII Rebirth so far have loved it. I think you will as well. And yeah, Chocobos play a big role in the game too, which is nice. I love that. I did see you can like hunt them and stuff. Yeah, well, like not hunt so them, but like rear them. Every every region. Oh, can you of- can you go to spoilers for half a second? How is the Golden Saucer? Is it good? Yeah, it, it's a good time. As far as bits of the game where 
they take you right out of the narrative go because you spend a lot of time doing stuff that isn't directly related to pushing the story forward. The stuff that you can do in Golden Source is probably the best part of it. Like it's okay. it, it, it's it's a good time. It's a genuine Hell good yeah. time. No, I love that. I, as far as that kind of, I don't know. I, I still think of all those kinds of moments across the two games. I still think the the party town in <laughs> remake was very good. Was the good time? But I think I don't know. The the dance scene in that that section of the game was just it's very Matt huge, hugely hugely entertaining and very memorable. I don't think gold. No, I won't say that. Golden Sword has got plenty of good moments, and it's a very memorable location in its own right. So I don't think that anybody will be disappointed with what they see in that bit. And but actually, to go back to what I was saying before, that's another moment because you obviously don't start in the Golden Saucer. Uh, that's something you're working towards as you as you play. So when it does finally show up and you do finally get to go there, again, it's it's one of those moments. I think fun of the probably the best quality about Rebirth is it has all of those moments of anticipation that yeah. you know something's coming. Like, oh, oh, oh. You know, yeah, Yuffie's coming, Vincent's coming, Golden Source is coming, and then on the other side of things, I guess. But you you kind of anticipate it because it's such a core cool moment. What happens to Ares? Ares, that's a that's a moment that you kind of spend the whole time playing, just kind of waiting for. Especially because you know who the writer is, and you want to see how he like, handles he that. Yeah, what's he going to do with it? So there's just yeah, the the anticipation that this game has. It is a very powerful motiv- motivating factor. So even when you're kind of bored with the open world nonsense, you're still going to keep playing because you just want to get the next bit, the next bit, the next bit. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, again, it's that it's that the anticipation, the joy of being like, I want to see what happens next. Yeah, it's a good exactly. sign for a game that is so narratively driven, obviously. There's honestly, I have not played many games that have that quality. Even Remake didn't have that. Yeah. Because the first chapter of Final Fantasy VII doesn't have the those kinds of moments. I mean, you know that at some stage there's going to be the city's going to be kind of dropped on the, the poor people underneath. But that's it for that section. And then yeah. you're just waiting until they kind of escape the city and that's kind of the end of the game so you've got two moments in that to anticipate um, sonic would have wanted it <laughs> which yeah, which which is not much but this again this chapter has just so many key moments and so many things to look forward to that you'll keep playing uh and the other thing is i don't know how much i can talk about without breaking embargoes because the embargoes on the character were pretty strict i'll play it safe it's- Everybody knows Zach shows up. I was going to say, I'm assuming that's why you're not allowed to talk. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows Zach shows up. The way that Zach shows up is via a kind of side story that's unrelated to the main timeline of the plot oh. when quite early on. So you know Zach's in the game, like within the introduction. Then he disappears because he's not kind of related to the main narrative at that point in time so then you spend most of the rest of the game wondering what's zach's actual role in the game and because zach is such a great character himself as we all know he is the best played, character because we all played the the remake of crisis core because we all yeah. played that we all know who zach, zach is we all love zach 
we spend a lot of time playing Rebirth, waiting to see what Zach's role in Rebirth is as well. They're just very good with that setup, like that, like keeping that anticipation going. So perhaps now yeah. that I've talked talked through all of that, I think that's probably why this game has scored so high, because mm-hmm. it just keeps setting up key moments, and then the payoff every single time doesn't disappoint. Like every that's really sing- impressive, though. Yeah, like that's that's a good thing. Yeah, every single every single thing they set up, they don't disappoint. So you can forgive the, and in fact, perhaps now that I'm talking through it again, I'm starting to think more about it. Perhaps that's kind of a positive quality of this open world because you spend so much time in the kind of the, the emptiness of that space and just kind of doing those little side quests. Because it stretches the time that you're playing so long, the anticipation for the key moments in the narrative just builds higher and higher. So the payoff feels bigger and bigger if that makes sense yeah there's like okay. a, so oh, it's, there's there's like a, a delay in kind of, release yeah there's this kind of delayed gratification that happens throughout the entire game okay so now i'm starting to turn around on the open world i kind of see an argument for it now there you go so look in, at you in, in real time about stuff in, in real time <laughs> we have been you're seeing me kind of change my opinion about parts of the game but um I guess that's a good quality of art, isn't it? If you can continue to think about it and continue to reassess it when you yeah. look at it from different angles, then it's a good piece of art. And I think ultimately Rebirth is a good piece of art. That's really cool. Well, I mean, by the time you're listening to this, Rebirth will have been out. So get ready. Definitely pick it up, I'd say, if you can. If you can't, that's fine. Probably just but do put it, sure do put aside help. a minimum of hundred hours. It's a very long game. Yeah, don't start Shimigami Tensei Five and then co start Rebirth because it, oh boy. Yeah, it it it's about twice as long in terms of raw hours as remake. Like remake was about forty to fifty. To 50. Jesus, I was going to say because I I did everything in that game and I had a great time, but like bloody hell. Yeah. Yeah.
Like, it's, it's literally out of nowhere. Um, you know, Helldivers, as a brand, was a weird Vita game and weird PS3 game from 2011. Now it's the biggest thing I think I've seen on the internet in quite some time. Like, it's a Baldur's Gate size like game to the point where people were complaining about servers because there was only 450,000 spots. And it got me thinking about stuff that appears out of nowhere and all of a sudden takes over the world. Alan, before you do that, can you explain crazy. to me why is Helldivers 2 so popular when Helldivers 1 was so niche? Like, what uh, have they Helldivers done that's top down. Ah, uh, this one's the... Who is over the shoulder. Yeah, gotcha. Cool. So it's more, more understandable. The game is yep. also the most 2009 PS3 era video game I think I've ever played in that it feels like playing, like, Horde mode or... Is it just um, Dynasty Warriors but with sci-fi and guns? Not really, no. It's 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 more like Earth Defense Force, but the bugs can all kill you. Ah, like it's not a swarm game. Well, it is a swarm game, but it's like it's not a. There aren't really fodder. There are some little little guys, but most of these things will kill you in one or two hits. Gotcha. And it's the whole. It's very Starship Troopers, which is also funny because whenever Starship Troopers discourse happens on the internet, you get to find out the dumbest people in the world exist. Um, yeah, we so, we record this podcast. On, at the same week where Starship Troopers was like a trending topic for a week because yeah. every everybody, I mean, there were a bunch of people that couldn't work out that it was a satire of fascism. Literally a, a six, a year six child, a 12-year-old could do that, but it's yeah, fine. Yeah, it's the least sum of all time. But yeah, I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm yeah. looking at this um, now because I must admit, I did not play. I, I have not been following Helldivers 2. It came out of nowhere. Yeah. I'm one of the people that were surprised to hear or to find that something everybody's talking about. It. But it does look like a lot of fun. It looks like a more a less a less funny Earth Defense Force, but also oh, a better no, quality it's action. funny in a different way. Okay, because it's it's very very Starship Troopers in tone. So also oh, it's actually I mean, Starship Troopers in tone as well. Yeah, like you're you're killing the bugs because they're a threat to your exist like existence on Super Earth, but. What is actually happening is you're killing them because their body secretes oil and they want the oil. Oh my um, god, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, and then the other faction that we've got right now are the, the robots, but they're socialist robots. And they're trying to kill you and destroy democracy. Um, oh, that's great. Okay, okay. Yeah. You're selling me on this very quickly, Al. It's it's very, very heavy in the satire. Like, I named my ship, because you, you when you load the game, you get a ship that you pilot. It's like your mission hub. It's very Normandy from Mass Effect vibes. And I named my ship the Patriot of Patriotism. <laughs> so, like, it, it's that kind of vibe. And all the, 
all the little like quotes are like, oh, sweet Lady Liberty, I can't feel my legs, like that kind of thing. Or like you throw a grenade into a bug hole and your character shouts out, have a nice cup of liberty. Like it's that that kind of vibe. It's so over the top. It's so ridiculous. The the way that it carries itself is it's just what you would expect from a a Starship Troopers style game. So how did it come out of nowhere then? Like how did it Oh It started off with word of mouth. It's wild to me. The because the game wasn't big at all, but then suddenly people were playing it, and they're like, oh my god, it plays a bit like Left 4 Dead 2. Oh, it plays a little bit like Gears of War Horde mode. Oh, it plays a little bit like like all the games that we've been sort of wanting for us, because obviously the, the four-player co-op games, they're there, but they're not as big as they were once before. You know what I mean? Like, it's not as common to find, like, a, a good sit-down-with-your-mates-get-a-pizza-and-play-on-Xbox-live-until-2am games. There's not that many of them anymore, because usually they're, like, Suicide Squad, Kill the Justice League or something like that, where it's just this horrible mess of live service nonsense. And this has some live service stuff, but it's in the coolest way possible, where you're trying to take back individual planets with all the other players in the game. So you're trying to like spread democracy to different planets from the bugs, but then you might get a, a call from command saying, like, oh, we need everyone to focus on the automatons because socialism's taking over those planets and we don't want that. So you have to go over and you fly over and you see all the other ships of every single other Helldiver who's doing missions in that area, trying to also liberate it. So it's it's really, really cool. It's got all the best sort of like world building stuff. It's also got gunplay that's really satisfying as well. Like it, It's all friendly fire. So if you cool down an airstrike and you are not far enough away, your team is going to explode and it's going to be bad. Or if you're dropping in and your little drop pod thingy, and you land on someone, they're dead. They explode. A bug will spit acid at you and you will die. Like, it's it's just very, like, you're done. And there's a lot of satisfaction in that. This um, game was published by PlayStation. Again, yep. why, why did it drop out of nowhere? I mean... And I know. Why was there no marketing for it? It doesn't make any sense. It's... It, it completely blew up entirely just because people were saying, you have to get this game. It is sick. Like, it's actually really good. And it also helps as well that it launched at, I think, 30 pounds, like 35 pounds maybe, so 40 American dollars, which is, I mean, you think about it, the two biggest games of the last couple of months, Power World, which I hate, and Helldivers 2, you could buy both of those games for the price of buying the Suicide Squad, you know? And like, people don't want to spend $70 on a game that sucks ass, that, you know, makes you waste all your time on it. It's actually like about playing the bloody game, which I think is really, really fun. So, I don't know, it's it's exciting to see. I think it's it's interesting because, you know, it's obviously a fairly, the production values are a a fairly high quality. And as you say, the the scope of it and the complexity that went into it, it's obviously not cheap in the game. We used to, we've always had instances of games that have kind of dropped and, and come out of nowhere and really impressed people. But historically, those games have been kind of modest in design and mm. kind of indie games that have taken off. So, you know, good examples of that, Among Us, for example, which kind of... Undertale. Or Undertale or Stardew Valley, you know. I mean, Stardew Valley yeah. these days is this massive thing, but 
it grew over a There's very a symphony long, in London. <laughs> it, it grew over a very long period of time. It was just a very modest thing when it was first released. People played it and they kind of, you know, they liked it and, and word of mouth and reviews and whatever else started to spread it. And it's become a very big thing, but it was, it was one of those games. These days we're getting these things like Helldivers, which they just, which people just don't pay attention to until it releases, despite it being of a scope that it would have been a, a big game previously, you know? I'm, yeah. And I'm just well, surprised. It's like a this. mid-budget PS2 game, you know what I mean? It's like a res. Yeah. I'm just... You know what I mean? Like, I, I, it's I, really I'm, cool. I'm surprised by this. It's... it. I mean, me too. It just plays really well. It's difficult, so it's challenging. Keeps you interested. It, There's a bunch of different difficulty levels as well, so everyone can play it. And it's fun regardless, because even if you suck and you die, you usually die in a really funny way that's like over the top and ridiculous. I guess it raises so like, the, who cares? I guess it raises the question about whether whether it's just a case there being too many games and it becomes very hard to follow the industry as a whole. I, I had a similar thing. I don't think the game anyway has this it has anywhere near the same profile as Helldivers and it didn't release with the same hype behind it. But it came from a developer and publisher that I really like and respect and admire. And it's a very, very good game in its own right. So Banishers came out just a couple of weeks ago. That's and the, the Don't Nod game. Yeah, it's a, it's a Don't Nod game. It's RPG with a really cool vibe. It takes place in kind of Puritan era America, around Boston area. You know, that kind of part of America. Little hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's you know, all about ghosts and... It's got all of Don't Nod's abilities around storytelling in terms of, you know, asking you hard questions that make you put down the controller, make a coffee and really yeah. think about which decision you're going to make and all of that kind of stuff. Is it more fleshed out than Vampire? Oh, yeah. It, it is much better done in every way than Vampire. It's actually a very, mm-hmm. it plays much better as well. It's actually a really nice playing RPG. There's very Heck little yeah, wrong good with for it. them. I actually gave it a higher score than Final Fantasy. I gave it a full five out of five because it is creatively different as well. Uh, it's kind okay. of it's a unique game in a lot of ways. It's it's one of those rare ones that's just and the point is that it kind of came out of nowhere as well, despite me knowing following Don't Nod and playing pretty much all of their games that I can, and despite me being a fan of the RPG genre and all of that, I didn't know about this until the review code landed with me. So there seems to be something, even for those of us, you know, that are quite deeply immersed in the video game industry. It's becoming hard to track these things, and a lot with discovering, you know, a lot of games that we love, literally in real time. Of, yeah, as, as I they mean, get released, and I, I just wonder if there's there's something. If the, I mean, I think that's an issue for the industry, right? Because it means that people are not going to play play these games. If the people like us who are quite deeply immersed in video games are missing releases like this. Or yeah. just kind of catching them right at the last minute, just as the game kind of comes out. Then, how many people who are not that deeply engaged, engaged with the industry are even going to be aware of this one's existence? Like Banishers only has nine hundred and forty-three reviews, so it's obviously that's not wild to well. me. And it's a don't nod game as well. Like they it's were a, massive. It's a don't nod game, and the reviews have been pretty pretty universally positive. And yeah. it's just a lot of people missed it because. There seems to be some issue with communicating games coming out. So I wonder what that is. You know, I wonder 
if there's something about how the games industry is currently communicating and its marketing strategies and stuff, if if there's an issue there. I think the big question for me is how is a game like Greedfall going to do? Because that's coming out, Greedfall 2. Yeah. I want to I know if that's going to get the same sort of niche response. Because uh, yeah. it's, I, I love these double A budget games. Well, and they're probably not double A budget anymore by like a general consensus. But like, you know what I mean? It's not like a, it's not a case of having to spend seventy dollars on a video game. It's like a forty or a, a you know fifty, that sort of thing. I just find it bizarre that you know the biggest games, the ones that are making clearly the most money, are ones that are not the ones with aggressive microtransaction strategies. They're not the ones with the aggressive, the like anti-consumer practices. It's the ones that have very very good stuff in them already that are like interesting as heck, and just respect you as a player. I wonder. I, think if it, that, I wonder if it's the. I wonder if it's the move away from events to kind of showcase games. I wonder if the lack Maybe? of an E3 is costing the industry in terms of the ability to kind of promote these games in particular, these kinds of games that we're talking about. Because when you think Maybe. about it, they do the Nintendo Directs or the Sony State of Plays or the Microsoft, whatever the fuck they call them. And in those, people get really hyped about the one or two kind of headline marquee games that they're going to show off. Yeah. But everything else just kind of disappears very quickly. It doesn't get doesn't get covered. It doesn't get really talked about. <clears throat> There's a yeah. couple of tweets about it <laughs> while they're showing it on the screen during the presentation. But after that, it it dies off. Whereas yeah. with the likes of E3 or whatever, yes, again, the marquee, the headline games got a lot of the attention. But journalists would still go and check out a game at a booth. They'd talk to the journalists. Uh, sorry, they'd talk to the the PR person or the producer or whoever was there, and they would still write article about that game as part of their coverage. Yeah. So that way it was more available and articles get shared and stuff. So I just wonder if they've actually narrowed these through these events, which are kind of the, the number one way that they share information about games now. I, I wonder if through these digital events, they're actually narrowing the range of games that we become aware of. Well, I mean, that sort of made me think then as well, why do we not have the return of the demo? Because I'm thinking about it. Yeah, they've all kind the of big games demos now. What demos coming out after the game's been released for like six months? Yeah, well, Tekken, Tekken 8 rather had a demo which let you play as four different characters. And like, that's pretty good because it sold me on buying the game on release. And I mean, Street, did Street Fighter not have like four different betas or something like that? And like, that's basically a demo. Yeah, I mean, those ones, but um, I was thinking more like, for example, I can guarantee this will happen. The Skulls and Bones, the Ubisoft oh, God. pirate ship game. Okay, so that came out, right? And there's no demo for that, I don't think, because this is Ubisoft. <laughs> there no will be a demo. It. There will be a demo, but in a couple of months. That's what a lot of publishers do these days. They do a demo after release, and I think it's to try and catch people after they've already sold the game to the initial wave, because that initial wave is critical to game developers and publishers now. Like the first yeah, three or four days. You need days to get of, immediate return. Yeah, the first three or four days of sales are critical to the video game being a success or not. If And they won't do anything that will risk those sales. So technically, yes, a demo, a, a, a demo will help you find some players, but there's also the chance that you'll get people cancelling pre-orders if they play a demo and they're not... Oh, and they don't like it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So unless you've got confidence that you're looking at a 100 
you know, review score over over 95 review score kind of game, there is actually a disincentive to do a demo. There are some examples of genres where demos obviously help with, and fighting games are a good example of that. If you've got a good fighting game, then... You know if you've got a good fighting game. Yeah, if you can show it to people, you can get people to play it, then you know that they're going to buy the whole thing because they're probably their favourite character is probably not one of the roster of the demo. So there is incentive there to pay up for the full thing. But in terms of these kind of games like RPGs and whatever... It's then, hard to show an RPG off in a demo, though, to be fair. There is that as well, you know. You, you it, can't really show a JRPG off with an hour and a half demo. Insane you can't really show off with, like, a 10-hour demo. Insane that. Square Enix did do a demo for Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, which was good of them. They did one for sixteen as well, which they was did. also really good. It showed you the important parts that had changed. Yes. So there are some, but you've got to be really confident about the game, I, I think is the mm. point. You have to be super, super confident about the game to make a demo. Otherwise you're much better off holding the demo as a kind of post-release marketing yeah. thing. Because after that, after you know, you've already got your pre-order sales and people have already bought the game and people have been whinging about it and whatever, uh, after that, the demo then can kind of pick up the residual players that maybe were sitting on the fence and hadn't really thought or might discover it through the demo. So, yeah, that seems to be the strategy that publishers of lesser quality games run with. Pretty Ubisoft. Yeah, Sorry, soft. I Ubisoft sneezed. Is, is, and and uh, 2K does it too, actually. And they do it with their, their basketball games. The demo comes out after release. To be fair, that's kind of just like... I, if you're into basketball, you're playing 2K. <laughs> like, but, it's not really... Again, what are the options? Think about it. If they, if, you, if they put out the basketball game and you didn't like what they've done this year and you discover that through the demo, then that's, you know, that's a core sale they've lost. Yeah, it's just interesting. I'm, I don't know. I, I want to see more mid tick. It's the meme. It's always the meme of the. I want shorter games made by people who work less, and I want it to look worse. Yeah, I mean, there were we're at the point now where the mid tier games, the difference between them and those kind of blockbusters is fairly limited. Like Banishes, for example, doesn't look that much worse than God of War. Well, I mean, it's now we're getting to the point where game graphics, it's not about graphics anymore for me. It's about what's the style. Like, does it look cool? Yeah. Because uh, photorealism, I've had this issue for years and years at this point. But it's like, why would I want something to look like the real world? I exist in the real world. I can go outside. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I want no, something no, that's really interesting to look at. You're, you're totally right. And, it does need uh, to be, and that's part part of the reason that I like Banishes was the the setting was just it was different, you know. It's new, yeah, new, new England in America is it's a unique aesthetic, especially when you kind of layer it over with witchcraft style horror themes yeah. and, and stuff. So oh, it, I'll have to get that for my fiance. That sounds like her vibe so much. She'll, she'll <laughs> like it. I mean, you'll have your tears because it's it, it is a story about you know the the two characters and one of them dies and comes back as a ghost and. You've got three options then about how you kind of deal with that situation. You can bring her back to life, but doing that means that you have to sacrifice a lot of living people. So that's a hard decision to make. And, and the, the way it positions it is, you know, you, you'll go through the stories of each of these characters and you, then you'll have to decide whether they live or die so that your 
you know, your partner <laughs> can be brought back to life or not. So now this sounds sick. It's it's I'm a very board. it's a very good emotional but also thought provoking game and highly recommend it. But uh, yeah, on, if we, don't if, nod. If if we're going to if we're going to get more of these games, then there really needs to be a, something done to, to make people more aware of them, because yeah. it's getting harder and harder. I think the, the saturation of also... video games is getting diff- more. Like there are more and more games getting released. The saturation is getting greater, which means these mid tier games, which have always struggled in fairness to kind of get yeah. presence. Like you're going to historically, you'd go into a video game store and the mid tier games would struggle to get you know a space on the shelf, and that made it hard for them to sell. But if they were a good enough quality game, the lack of saturation in video games meant that you'd be able to find it, find information yeah. about it fairly easily. These days. Not only are they, well, they're not really struggling for shelf space because people are buying digitally more than ever, but they're really struggling to get people to notice them. And that's an even yeah. bigger problem because people will actually seek out a game that looks good to them. People are, cannot seek out a game that they can't, that they don't, that, 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 that they're not aware of. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And I, I worry about studios like Don't Nod. I mean, you can't. You can't run a studio like Don't Not and only have 900 reviews of a major release. Yeah. It's very, it makes me think about how important word of mouth actually is at this point. Cause it's probably the single most important thing a dev can have in a social media era. And it has to be quick. I think part of the reason yeah. Helldivers was so successful, if Helldivers kind of had that slow burn growth in interest, like a Stardew Valley or a Among Us, then it may not have actually ever got to the point that it is now because that's, yeah, it, the the success of Helldivers has been the fact that everybody has suddenly picked it up and started playing about it and talking about it in, at once. Yeah, it's also a big sense of community in the game as well because if you couldn't get into the game, you got the, sorry, you have to wait, servers are full. So people will go to Twitter and then talk about how the servers were full. And if the servers for a game are full, that's a good sign for someone who's looking at the game being like, is this worth my money? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a perfect storm of everything just going really well for them. And, you know, kudos to them. They're a pretty small dev. I don't think they've made much. I think they've literally just made Helldivers one in this. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely good to see. But the question is, I guess, whether they got lucky or not. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's cool, though. I'm just excited that there's fun multiplayer stuff that exists in the world. And I do hope that Dope Not succeeds as well.